This past, um, this past June, our denomination gathered for their biannual meeting, which is a, a meeting that our denomination gathers uh, the churches from around the United States, around our, our, uh, around our country, together to hear from the president of our denomination uh, a bit about where he sees uh, our family of churches going in the near future, specifically for the next uh, 10 years. And I mention it because as I've been looking at some of the reports coming out of that conference, I wasn't able to be there. Um, we had VBS going on here, which was a lot of fun. But um, as I hear some of the reports coming out of that conference, um, I, I, I'm encouraged to hear that the direction that Converge is headed in is paralleling where we as a church have been going as well. That if you remember a, a while back, our, our elders set forth a plan, a goal, a desire to see our church grow in becoming more outwardly focused. That we would be a church that, that, is, that is genuinely concerned for our neighbors, uh, both in, in near vicinity of our church, but also in our own neighborhoods as we go back to our homes and the surrounding area. You see, our understanding of a healthy church is that, that, that it's one that's overflowing with the love of God in such a way that God's love is flowing out of us and into the lives of the people around us. Uh, one of the joys of being able to see my kids grow up and get bigger and, and more independent is seeing them kind of embrace some of this independence, right? And one of the, one of the ways that I've seen that in my uh, sons recently is uh, in their chance to kind of get some of their own food. Uh, if we're at dinner and they want, you know, more, more food, they can go up and get it. Uh, if they're thirsty, they can get a drink. And, and the picture I have in my mind for when they pour themselves a drink uh, is kind of this picture of... of, of of overflowing love and grace, if, if you know where I'm going. Uh, they, you know, I tell them, go ahead and get, get themselves a glass of milk or water, if that's what they want. And, and if you can picture this, they take the glass, and I'm very proud of them. They, they begin to pour, the, they get the milk out of the fridge, or they go to the, the uh, dispenser in the fridge, and they start to fill up their cup. But, uh, but one thing they've had to learn is that um, when enough is enough, right? And, uh, and, and, and they had to learn that. Um, through some of their own mistakes, and that's okay. We learn from our mistakes. But, but what you can picture is, as the cup is getting full, my anxiety is getting more and more full because I can picture, I know where this is going, right? I, I know that when they get to the top and they keep going, then the milk or the water, whatever it is, is just going to spill over the top and onto the counter or onto the, the fridge or whatever is there, uh, onto the areas surrounding their cup. But, but, you know, as, as, as messy as that can be for me, or um, as uncomfortable as that can be for me when it comes to their drink, I think it's the picture of what God desires his love and his forgiveness and his grace to be in our lives. That, that the picture of health in his followers is one where God has filled us so much with his love and his grace and his forgiveness that we can't help but see it overflow into the lives of the people around us. So what if, what if we saw then this idea of generous love, this, this idea of generous love being something that we have received first in Christ, be filled with so much that it overflows into lives around us, not be some sort of obligation that it's something we Christians do, but rather a natural response to the love of God in our own lives. What if we were so deeply and personally aware of how much God loves us that we couldn't help but see that love and that grace and that forgiveness overflow onto the lives of the people around us? And so it is with our denomination that, that, that our denomination wants our local churches to be filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ so much that we are overflowing into the lives of the people who make up the communities around us and to the ends of the earth. 
Take, take a look at this video of the 10-year vision that, that President Rideout uh, unfolded for us at this last conference for Converged Churches. Let's watch the video. It was Jesus' prayer that we would come together and be one. But there was more. In his prayer, he said, I pray they will be one, so the world will know. Jesus gives us a purpose to gather around, that the world would come to know and love him. We're reminded of this every time we look at the cross. The cross reminds us that sin has a remedy that Jesus is who he says he is. We have forgiveness for our past, power for our present, and hope for our future. He gave his life for us so we could give our lives for him. We're on a mission to make disciples. Every man, woman, and child, young and old, rich and poor, is unbelievably valuable to God and worth every effort to reach them with the message of Jesus. And so we converge around the cross. We converge to tell what Christ has done for us and to make it known in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our communities, around the world. We know what he has done, and we know what he has asked us to do. We start churches because the message of Jesus through the church brings hope to the world. We're committed to starting missionally-minded churches in every people group and community. We start churches that start churches to see lives change with Christ's love and truth. We strengthen churches. Strong churches are led by strong leaders, so we equip leaders to expand their ministry impact and fulfill the unique calling God has given them. We send people Many of us anticipate the second coming of Jesus, but many in the world still haven't heard of his first coming. While we want all people to know Jesus, we focus on the least reached peoples of the world. We equip national leaders to create movements that impact individuals, communities, and regions through the power of the gospel. This is what we do. This is who we are. We start and strengthen churches together worldwide so the world will know Jesus. We are Converge. So we've been on this journey of exploring generosity this year. And I think as we've gone on this journey and we've explored this idea of biblical generosity, I think we, you'll see, and I feel like I see so clearly, that, that we can help pursue this vision with converged churches. As we grow in generosity, we too can, can pursue this 10-year vision for unity with other followers of Jesus Christ within Converge. And as we grow in overflowing with the gospel of Jesus Christ, though, it's going to be important for us to continue to explore this idea of generosity, to, to ask these questions that we've been exploring this, this summer, specifically around generous love. And, and this morning we want to explore a question together that I think really does help us take a step further toward pursuing this vision that President Rideout unfolded at the conference. Because it's a question, that I think, that sets us on the path 
toward pursuing this, this, this expanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ around the globe. It's a question of whose neighbor are you? Right? We've, been, we've been looking at the Good Samaritan story all summer long. And by the way, thank you for being so patient and enduring and staying with that passage. I mean, we've, we've stuck in Luke chapter 10, and it's been a joy, but also I know that uh, we're eager to, to kind of go out elsewhere in the Bible, but, but we've stuck right around Luke chapter 10, and it's been great. And, and this morning, I'm going to tell you, we're going to go somewhere else. But, but before we do, I want us to, to start from Luke chapter 10. Because, see, I think in Luke chapter 10, we see this question answered, whose neighbor are you? Because in Luke chapter 10, there, remember, there's this lawyer who's asking Jesus, kind of, kind of asking Jesus these questions, and, and specifically, he asked Jesus, okay, well, if, if my goal is to love the Lord my God and to love my neighbor as myself, then, well, whose neighbor am I? And, and Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, right? He tells the story about a man who's been beaten on the, the path, and, 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 and the Samaritan is being the one who comes and cares for him. And, and, and Jesus says, well, who do you say is your neighbor, right? And, and the lawyer rightfully says, the one who showed compassion. See, that question, who is my neighbor, is answered right there. See, Jesus doesn't define neighbor based on ethnicity or, or your zip code. He defines a neighbor as a relationship of meeting the needs of others in compassion. Now, I know that's not new to us this summer, right? We've been, we've been exploring this all summer long. But this morning, I want us to take a closer look at that question of who is my neighbor, because I think we're going to find more encouragement in living out this generous love as we do. So this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Galatians chapter 6. Not Luke 10, but Galatians chapter 6. Because we're going to see there, Paul talk about this, this, relationship, this relationship with a neighbor, this relationship that's defined by meeting someone in a place of need. In Galatians chapter 6, I want us to read verses 9 and 10. So in your pew Bible, I believe it's on page 975. If you have your own Bible, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6, reading verses 9 and 10. Let's listen to the word of God. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Can I pray and thank God for his word? Father, we do thank you that you have spoken to us. And we recognize that these are not just words on a page, but they are your living word. And so, Father, we ask and pray that as we, as we unpack your word together this morning, that you would encourage us, that, that you would uh, prod us on towards maturity, that you would help us grow, that we would learn to trust you and your word even more today. Thank you, Lord. We ask that you would make your word clear to us and receive this gift as a gift from our loving Heavenly Father. We pray this all in your Son's name. Amen. Well, where we pick up in the scriptures this morning, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. He's writing to Christians. And the church there in Galatia is actually made up of Jewish Christians and, and Gentile Christians. Christians who grew up in the, in the Jewish faith and were aware of all the traditions and the, 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 the temple sacrifices and, and the way of, of living as a, as a, a child of, of the Jewish faith. And, and also those who didn't grow up in the Jewish faith. The Christians who came to put their faith in Christ, who, who didn't grow up as, as a, a member of the nation of Israel, but, but, um, but grew up uh, there in Galatia or, or somewhere apart from uh, the Jewish uh, nation. We're told that uh, in this letter uh, to the Galatians, Paul really challenges what it means to be a Christian. 
And, and not necessarily in a bad way, but he says, hey, let's really consider what does it mean to be a Christian? Because the Jewish Christians were, were kind of, they were getting up against the Gentile Christians saying, hey, you're not really a follower of Jesus until you get uh, circumcised, until you, you begin to practice the, the temple sacrifices and, and follow our Jewish way of life. And, and Paul, as a missionary to the Gentiles, says, whoa, 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 slow down. Let's, let's look back and try to remember what it really means to be a follower of Christ, to trust in Jesus and the work that he's done on our behalf. And so uh, j- just to, to give you a, a bit of a cliff notes of the letter, let me just point out that, that Paul argues that our righteousness is only given to us by accepting the work that Jesus has done on our behalf through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and his defeat of death and sin. We're not made righteous through our obedience to temple and sacrificial laws only through receiving the gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. If you were to flip back in your Bible, actually, uh, actually my Bible, it's on the same page, uh, page 975. Uh, we, we see uh, in Galatians 5.22, Paul talks about what this righteousness really looks like. We know it as the passage that talks about the fruits of the Spirit. But I believe that, that the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is the work of Jesus Christ in your lives, growing you and maturing you in such a way that that's what that maturity, that, the righteousness looks like, the righteousness of Christ. It looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is a righteousness that's born in us through Jesus Christ alive in us. Let's see, the reality, I think, though, for us is that even though that's true, we do get caught up from time to time in chasing after our own righteousness. Whether we recognize it or not, sometimes it's just simple to, to kind of fall back into our default mode where, where we somehow think, uh, you know, if I try harder, if I do better, if I obey him more, he's going to love me more. He'll forgive me more, right? But, but the reality is that that's falling back into a, a, a works righteousness. And I don't think that that's what Paul is, is communicating to the church in Galatia right now. See, I think he's communicating something a, a little bit different. Consider what he says in verse 9 of chapter 6. Paul says this. He says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. On, on the surface, this really does sound like a, a righteousness we earn through our own efforts. If we do good, if we keep doing good, keep doing good, maybe we'll receive good. But, but what Paul means by telling uh, the Christ followers not to give up and to not quit doing good is more than just good acts, right? I think if we, were, if we looked back at chapters 5 and 6 of, of this letter to the Galatians, uh, or even the whole letter, we would see that, that the, the good that Paul articulates is more of this good that is in keeping with the righteousness that only comes from Christ, examples, we, when we look back over those chapters, we see that he talks about uh, kind of removing people from the community who are just there to agitate and to, to create division and make people question their faith. He, he talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. He, he, he encourages people to walk by the Spirit. In other words, trust in God more and, and more and more. Be a people who bear fruit such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, all offered toward God and others. Provide material support for those who oversee and care for the Christian community and instruct in the faith. 
practice church discipline by restoring those brothers and sisters in Christ who have walked away from God and walked away from their faith. Bear one another's burdens. And Paul, Paul summarizes all of this as obeying the law of Christ. Instead of the ceremonial laws of the temple, this is a, a new law that Jesus proclaimed during his time on this earth. And it's recorded for us in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says this, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. See, this is the good that Paul is talking about. A life of obedience to Jesus by trusting him and following him more. But notice who we're to do the good to. In verse 10 of Galatians chapter 6, we read this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, Paul encourages followers to, to, of Jesus to, to live generously toward all people. Like Jesus, Paul is encouraging us to love all people, but also, and especially, the people who share in the faith, right? This is what we should make becoming a member, this is what should make becoming a member of the local church so important to us. It's so much more than just an opportunity to vote at an annual meeting. It's so much more than a chance to gather once a year at a business meeting, although the fun part is gathering for the food beforehand, right? Uh, but it's so much more than that. It's, it's the fact that I'm making a decision to, to, to commit myself to a, a family, a body of believers who are following after Jesus, and even more so, to, to have the assurance that their commitment is toward me and my faith and my family's faith. This is what it means to be a member of the local church body. It, it's, what, it's what Paul has talked about here in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Whether to a believer or someone who doesn't have a relationship with, with Jesus, as children of God and followers of Jesus, we're to love all people, and especially fellow Christians, in the manner that Jesus loved us. Sacrificially, compassionately, humbly, and selflessly. But I don't know about you, when I hear that we're to love all people, that still seems too broad. It, it still seems too big, too too overwhelming, right? I, we, we, we can't, we don't have the bandwidth or the ability to love all people with, with, with more than what we have. So, so how do we take the limited time, treasure, talent, truth, and touch that God has gifted to us and use them in a specific way that God desires for us? Because I'll tell you what, there are moments in my life where I am stretched so thin and I'm, I'm giving, or at least I think I'm giving well to others, and, and one more need comes before me. You know what? I, I have to just say as a side note, there is a time where we do need to say no. Because if loving our neighbor is at the expense of loving God, then we're not being faithful to him. There may be a time where we need to say no, and, and there, there are some really good guidelines to that. And that's going to be a conversation for another day. But, but, but for today, we have to recognize that, that God has given us time, treasure, talents, truth, and touch, people in our lives that we're in relationship with. But those are limited resources. Those are limited treasures. And so we have to ask the question, 
How do we take those limited uh, treasures and use them in the specific way that God has invited us and desires for us to use them? Now, I think we've, we've discussed this a little bit before, but it has to be a specific aim. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5, we're told this. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. See, if we never des- develop a specific aim for, for who we're to love, we risk being a people who don't follow through on, on practicing what we preach. We, we talk about these great ideals on Sunday morning, but we don't actually live them out Monday through Sunday. We don't live them out week long. And so I, I think if we, we need to develop a specific aim. In the movie, The Patriot, Mel Gibson is, is training his sons to fight against the British soldiers in the American Revolutionary War. And, and as they're getting ready to fight the British, he, he reminds his two younger sons of the principles of shooting that he had raised them in and trained them in. He tells them, aim small, miss small. In other words, if you aim for a small target on your larger intended target, you're more likely to still hit the target even if you miss that small target. For, for those of you who enjoy golf, this is a principle in putting, right? I mean, at least the way my father taught me when I was younger, if I was far enough on, uh, if I was on the green and far enough back from the hole, he would encourage me to aim for a small area around the hole, knowing that I may not get in the hole right away, but I'll get close enough to finish off the putt. It's a little bit of a different principle, but the same idea that we aim for an area on our intended ar- a target. We've got to aim small, and then we'll miss small. You know, I think this wisdom in, in being intentional and, and having a specific aim is true for loving our neighbors as well. The, the, the town of East Porterville may have been the hardest hit place in, in the drought of 2014 for California. Almost 1,000 people had no running water uh, of the 7,300 people in the community. Groundwater levels had plunged by 60 feet or more in some spots, and tens of thousands of wells were in danger. But few knew that until a 72-year-old woman named Donna Johnson started driving around the town and asking neighbors, do you have water? Again and again, the answer was no. And so when Johnson's well ran dry in June, she and her husband had no idea that they were actually a part of something much bigger. At one point, she said, I I guess I was just oblivious to how bad it had gotten. But that changed when she started stopping to listen to others. At the local gas station, for instance, she tuned into conversations and kept hearing, uh, so-and-so's well has run dry. And so in July of 2014, Johnson decided to put together a list of people out of water in East Porterville. The the local paper ran an article uh, that gave her phone number and address and said she was collecting bottled water for drought victims. The next day, there were pallets of plastic bottles under her tarp filled with water. Johnson recruited a neighbor to help make the deliveries, and the, the calls started coming in. The calls from people needing water, and they came as, and, and, and the calls were coming as quickly as the donated bottles of water had come in. Families would call at midnight and say, we're completely out of water. And, and she'd go and take them some. She'd deliver them water. See, M- Mrs. Johnson made her aim small by asking specific questions. She asked specific questions in specific situations, and then she listened for the answer. 
She stuck around. She didn't just gather information, but she actually listened to understand what the need was and what opportunities God was providing to meet those needs. So this morning, I think we need to aim small, and then we'll miss small. And so let me make a few suggestions for ways that we can aim uh, small in, in understanding who our neighbor is. Because I think there are, there are a few categories, there are three categories that we need to understand, to, to aim small at, to understand who our neighbors are. I think we need to look at the needs around us, the, the, the spiritual needs, the physical needs, and the emotional needs around us. To see an example of what I'm referring to with spiritual needs, I would encourage us to stay right here in Galatians chapter 6. Because in the first couple of verses of Galatians chapter 6, we begin to see what the spiritual need is and, and how we can aim small at the spiritual needs of our neighbors around us. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Galatians chapter 6. Paul says there in verses 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, Paul makes it a point here, as well as in a couple other places, like in Romans or the letter to the Ephesians, that, that, that as members of the church body, we are members of one another. That we are accountable to one another. That we are responsible for one another. The Marines give us a good illustration of this. Because uh, uh, according to Major David Dixon, who's now retired from the U.S. Marine Corps, he says that from day one, every Marine is taught to live a life worthy of a Marine. They're also told to, to hold, uh, hold one another accountable to that standard of excellence that's expected of a Marine. Dixon says that if the Marine next to you is falling asleep in class, you must have the moral courage to wake him up and motivate him to stay awake. If you're caught sleeping in class at, at boot camp, not only do you get in trouble for laziness, but the Marine to your left and to your right get in trouble for a, a lack of moral courage because they should have corrected you when you were in the wrong. The British Marine commandos offer a graphic example of this principle because during the war in Afghanistan, a unit of British Marine, Marine commandos came across uh, an enemy combatant who was badly wounded and unarmed. One of the, the British Marine soldiers lost control of his anger, pointed his pistol at the man, and ended his life. Now, the soldier then turned to his fellow commandos and said, Hey, guys, let's keep this between us because I just broke the Geneva Convention. Word did get out in the following days. And that commando was found guilty of murder. And so the question has to be asked, could anything have been done or said to prevent that tragedy? Well, some military experts believe that, that murder could have been prevented if just one other Marine in that unit had the courage to confront their fellow soldier and hold him accountable. It would have just taken four simple words. Marines don't do that. Well, what if more of us had the courage to be accountable to one another as the Marines are accountable to one another? As part of this spiritual faith community, we have a spiritual responsibility to one another. When my brother or sister are walking in sin, if I love them, then it's my duty to talk with them, to walk with them, to encourage them to turn from that sin, to return to the Lord, to trust in him, to receive his forgiveness in repentance. 
See, it's, it's not just the pastor or the elder's responsibility to correct a brother or sister in Christ's behavior or, or attitudes. In fact, I would actually say some of you are in a much better place to come alongside a brother or sister in Christ and encourage them to turn from those decisions that they're making in, in life that are, that are keeping them from the Lord, that are creating a blockade in their relationship with God. And yet when we lovingly and gently restore our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're choosing to, to bear one another's burdens. We're willing to get our hands dirty, to jump into the fray with one another. When we restore in a spirit of gentleness, as Paul instructs, we generously love God and love our neighbor with very real spiritual needs. And, and let me just say, for me, I don't think that means just picking up the phone and telling someone what they've done wrong. I think Paul very intentionally and specifically chose these words in verse 1, that we should restore him, restore him or her, in a spirit of gentleness. If we really love them, then it matters and it will influence how we approach our brother and sister in Christ and restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So I think paying attention to the spiritual needs around us help us identify who our neighbor is. As you look around you and you see spiritual needs of the people around you, you see your neighbor. And I think in the same way when we aim at the emotional needs of those around us, we come to know who our neighbor is as well. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, Paul instructs us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. He invites us to share in the emotions of one another, to, to meet people where they're at and encourage them to be willing to get messy with our emotions. When we speak with those around us about things beyond the weather or, or when we're willing to give a response other to the question, how are you doing with good, then, then we recognize we're willing to go deep and pray for each other, celebrate with one another, share the emotional burden during times of deep sadness. I want to encourage us to consider a time in Jesus' life when, when he recognized an emotional need of someone around him and drew near to his neighbor. In Luke chapter 7, we can read these words, a story of, in Jesus' life, starting in verse 11 of Luke 7. He says, uh, there we can read, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. It's <laughs> not exactly the most compassionate response to someone who's weeping to say, Do not weep. I mean, I, learn from my mistake. If someone's crying, don't say, Don't cry. I mean, but, but I think we recognize that Jesus is a bit more compassionate than, than we might be in that situation if we were to say that. I think if we were to look at the verses that followed, you'd see that, that Jesus uses that opportunity to reveal that he is God in the exercise of his power to raise this young man from the dead. That, that he met this woman in her grief and her sadness. That he came alongside her. He drew near to the emotional need of her grief and met her in that place, raised her son from the dead. Now, we may not be like Jesus and be able to raise people from the dead, but we can respond to the emotions around us with compassion as Jesus did. For some of us, that may look like growing more comfortable with another person's tears. 
For others, it may look like the discipline of sitting in silence as we sit with those who are, uh, who are overwhelmed with sadness of, of some pretty heavy news. Whatever it may look like, we need to give ourselves permission to respond compassionately to the emotions of the people around us, just as Jesus did. We pay attention then to the the spiritual needs around us. We pay attention to the emotional needs around us. And lastly, we can pay attention to the physical needs of those around us to better understand who our neighbor is. In the end of Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about what things will be like in the future when he returns to fully usher in his new kingdom. He talks about at the end of time, we will stand before him and give account for our lives. Now, let me be clear. I believe that the only way that we will receive salvation from our sins is through the work of Christ and trusting in his work on the cross. But that doesn't mean that I won't be responsible to stand before him at the end of my life and give account for how I live my life on this earth and my time on this earth. And so as we stand there at Uh, or as we read through Matthew 25, we're given a depiction of what that day will look like when we stand before Christ. And and, and so let's read Matthew chapter 25 together and picture this together. Because there in verse 34, we can read these words. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, when when Jesus returns, he's not only going to look at our lives, but also how we used our lives to meet the physical needs of our neighbors here in this world. And when we meet the physical needs of our neighbors, we are loving God and we're loving our neighbors as well. I think this is why the king will say, whatever you did to one of the least of these, my brother, You did to me. See, when you find someone going hungry in their poverty, you found your neighbor. When you find someone in need of clothing or shelter, you found your neighbor. There's a story of a a small Jewish town in Russia where there's a rabbi who, who disappears each Friday morning for several hours. His devoted disciples boast that during those hours, their rabbi goes up to heaven and talks to God. In the story, a stranger moves into the town, and he's skeptical about all this, so he decides to check things out for himself. He hides and watches, and and so that that Friday morning, the the rabbi gets up, he gets dressed in in peasant clothes, says his prayers, he grabs an axe, and heads off to the woods. Once he's there in the woods, he cuts some firewood, and then hauls it to a shack on the outskirts of the village. There in that shack lives an old woman and her sick son. He leaves them the wood, enough for a week, and then sneaks back home. Ha- having, having observed this, this stranger uh, watches the rabbi's actions. He, he, he decides to stay out in the village and become a disciple of this rabbi. And now, whenever he hears one of the villagers say that on Friday morning our rabbi ascends all the way to heaven, 
the newcomer quietly adds, if not higher. See, for the stranger in the story, he sees the rabbi providing these physical needs to this woman and her sick son as being an important part of his faith. That, that, that serving the physical needs of the people around him are, are, are not separated from his, his religious faith, his trusting in the Lord, his following after him. It's an important part of our faith as well because when we meet the physical needs of those around us, we bear one another's burdens. We fulfill the law of Christ and we love our neighbor. And so this morning, I, I want to encourage us. I, I want to encourage us to aim small at those needs around you. Aim small for the, the spiritual needs around you. Aim small for the emotional needs and aim small for the physical needs. And when we do, we can trust that we will miss small. We're going to hit our target. We're going to love our neighbors well. And we're going to love our Father, our Heavenly Father as well. And when you do see those needs, when, when you aim small at those needs and you see them, you're going to see your neighbor and you're going to know the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? See, the story of the Good Samaritan teaches us that, that Jesus defines our neighbors based on needs. So as you, as you look around you, i got to ask, what, what needs do you notice? I mean, the, the reality is there are needs all around us as we open our ears to listen, as we open our eyes to see and open our hearts to respond in compassion. Maybe you need to create time to listen for those needs. Maybe you need to pray about who God might be inviting you to spend some extra time with to get to know and understand what's going on in their life and understand whether or not they might be a neighbor for you. See, if we can, if we can pursue this vision together, if we can pursue this generous love, I think, I think we're going to make huge strides toward helping fulfill Converge's vision for the next 10 years. Pastor Rideout summarizes the vision into four simple statements. Each one reach one, each one raise one, each one start one, and each one send one. Each person reach one person. We all know someone in our lives who does not yet know Jesus. We, we all know someone in our lives, maybe it's a, a co-worker, a friend, a relative, someone who doesn't yet know of God's love for them made available through Jesus Christ. Each of us have an opportunity to play a role in reaching one more person with the love of Christ. So that's each one reach one. Each one uh, raise one. I, I, I get it. I understand this, this mindset in our church, but we, we need to understand that we each have an opportunity to raise up another leader or disciple. You may be sitting there saying, who, me? Yes. <laughs> yes, you. Uh, the reality is that God has, has equipped you for such a time as this. That there is someone in our church who is one step, maybe two steps behind you in terms of their discipleship in Christ. In terms of their role as a leader in this church. And so you have an opportunity to reach back, to take their hand, and to pull them along. To help them grow. Everyone in this church has someone else who is one step or two steps behind them. And we can help raise them up as a leader or raise them up as a disciple. So we, each one reach one, each one raise one, each one start one. In the next 10 years of our denomination, our denomination is hoping to start more churches around the globe. And, and hopefully Trinity will have that opportunity to play a role in either planting a church, 
in partnering with another church to plant a church, in maybe setting up a, a, a new worship space, a satellite location where we can worship the Lord and expand the reach of the gospel. And it's not, it's not to have a bigger piece of the pie. It's not, to, it's not to, to, to be a bigger church. It's to recognize that we have an, a chance to expand the reach of the gospel beyond the four walls of our church building. And so part of Converge's 10-year plan is that every church would recognize they have an opportunity to start another church as well. And then finally, each one, each one send one. Each church will play a role in, in sending workers out into the harvest. In the scriptures, Jesus said that, that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But the reality is we have a chance to play a role in sending those workers out into the out into the field. Last week, we had a, a chance to, to actually see a little of what this looked like in commissioning Chris Camaro. But here's the thing. There's something for each of us to get involved with as we generously get involved with others in our community. We each have a role. All of us know someone who doesn't yet know Christ. Any of us could invest in the life of another leader or disciple of Jesus to raise up others at Trinity. When the time comes, maybe you've got a specific gift that God would want you to use to play a role in starting another church at Trinity. And as we witnessed last week when we commissioned Chris Camaro onto the mission field, we all can play a role in encouraging and supporting, sending one another out into the harvest. But it all begins with getting to know who your neighbor is. What are the needs around you that God is calling you to meet, empowered by him? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you, you invite us to, to, to join with you in seeing your kingdom grow. Lord, we, we thank you that your love is first alive in us, that, that you loved us so much that you sent your only son, that by believing in him we might have a relationship with you, we might be forgiven that we might not walk with the burden of our past and our sins, but we might walk in the freedom of our future with you. And so, Lord, this morning I, I ask that you would give us the courage to begin to aim small around at the needs around us. That we would begin to understand more deeply who our neighbor is based on the needs that we observe and we see around us. Father, this morning we, we pray that you would transform us to, to be a people who follow you out into the harvest. That as a church, as we grow this year and, and these next 10 years, Lord, we would play a role in joining with our brother and sister churches in Converge to see your gospel go forth, to see your kingdom grow and expand here on this earth as we wait for your return. Lord, thank you that we can ask the question, who is my neighbor? Give us the courage to ask those questions ourselves this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.